So we're going to have a little bit of fun. It's difficult to follow someone like Dr. Robert Malone and Dr. Jill Malone, but I think we can do it. These guys are incredible. Um, as Lynn said, we have the former attorney general from the state of Indiana, um, and I hope one day he might become the governor. And here is a little known fact about the former attorney general. He also happens to be a famous Elvis impersonator. And I'm not making that up. So at some point, maybe we might, Alexis might have some competition at the end. Maybe we'll, get, we'll talk them into doing a little uh, Elvis duet. I don't know. Uh, and then, of course, Dr. Aaron Cariotti, um, he has an incredible book out right now, The uh, Rise of the, the, bio, the, the New Abnormal, sorry, The uh, Rise of the Biomedical Security State. And I have read it. I've actually read it two times. It's probably one of the best books I've ever read, and I don't say that lightly. So uh, I think we have some copies here. If we've run out, I suggest that you find the book somewhere, somehow, probably on Amazon. Is that right? Okay. So what we're going to do in this panel today, we're going to talk a lot about um, free speech and censorship. So people ask me all the time, if there was one thing that you had to identify as a mechanism that's brought our country to where it is today, I personally think it's the erosion of free speech and the tremendous censorship that we've seen in this country, both on the internet as well as social media. And we're now actually seeing it in the spoken word, right? How many of you guys have heard of this, the concept now of, of hate speech? right? Um, it's terrifying. And I know Dr. Aaron Cariotti is involved in a couple of lawsuits, and, I, and we'll talk today about those and start to dissect that. So with that, um, I'll kick it off with you, Curtis. Let's talk about free speech and truth and how that's being impacted from a, from a legal landscape. Hey, is this on? Can you hear me? There, there he is. We well, thank you very much, Laura. And uh, I want to really thank all of you for being here. It's great to see such a crowd. Um, and uh, if you're good, if you behave yourselves, I might give you a little Elvis later on. Then. <laughs> he also does a great Godfather impression. Yeah, and nice. and this I we do intend to have this be a little interactive, so we're going to talk to these gentlemen here about the work that they're doing. But at some point, I'm going to stop it, and we'll send a microphone. I, I'm sure we have a runner around here somewhere through the through the audience, because we'd love to give you guys the opportunity to ask some questions. I've this this crowd seems very very. I see you all out there taking copious notes, some of you. So um, we'll give you guys the chance to ask some questions. Well, now wait a minute, Laura. Just she broached the subject of The Godfather, so I have to say this: <laughs> The Godfather is my favorite movie. How, anybody join me with that? Every time it comes on AMC, I have to stop and watch it for at least a few minutes. <laughs> and what I love about The Godfather is it has the most fabulous lines. Want to make him an offer he don't refuse. <laughs> That's one of the good lines. But my favorite line from The Godfather is the very first line in the movie. Anybody know what that line is? It's when The Undertaker fades into black and he says, I believe in America. And ladies and gentlemen, that's why we're all here. Because we believe in America. But we believe in a certain type of America. We believe in a free America. You know, I'm more of a Batman guy than a Superman guy, but I love the concept of truth, justice, and the American way. And we think about comic strips, but that's very real because there is no America if there is no justice. There is no justice if there is no truth. And what we've seen over the last couple of decades, but manifest itself in the last few years, 
is an attack on the truth. And that's the central core of what we're dealing with, an attack on the truth. And we have to get back to truth, back to justice, to right these wrongs. And I'll, and I'll, I'll give you some examples of how this works. You are being purposely shut down and shut up. You are being intimidated into not speaking. That's what cancel culture is all about. Get these folks to sit on their heels and not make a fuss. And the other side is winning. The other side is winning. Now, one of the most dangerous things for a group like this is to be accused of being a racist. And the number one weapon is the weaponization of race in this country. If you can attach it to black, they won't fight back. And it creates an environment where you're afraid to say something. Now, I would, I would hazard to guess that just about everybody here, one of your biggest fears is someone accusing you of being a racist. And, and it's important to say that because today it's the accusation alone. It's not a matter of somebody proving it. All someone has to do is make a, an allegation, and that allegation becomes credible, and now you're fighting this racism thing. Anybody concerned about being called or accused of being a racist? Now, not who said not anymore? <laughs> Let's wipe that fear away. The thing is, there are some of you, and maybe most of you, who probably will say, uh, I don't have a racist bone in my body. And you'll make that statement out, and someone will call you on it. And, and I don't want to pick on you. I'm going to pick on myself, because this is, this is the understanding that we have to make in searching for the truth. This is me talking about me right now. When I see a black guy, a young black guy, bebopping down the street with dreadlocks, ball cap on sideways or backwards with that I'm a new cap tag still on there, pants hanging down so you can see the boxer shorts or worse yet, the crack of his tail, <laughs> tennis shoes open, I'm thinking gangbanger drug dealer. That's me thinking that. Totally unfair. Totally unfair. But that's me compartmentalizing what I think about someone else. Do you ever do something like that? Or what if I see a white guy, bald head, tattoos all down his arms and knuckles, tattoos going up his neck? I'm thinking white supremacist, and I'm walking across the street. Guy could be a Sunday school teacher for all I know. The point is that we all engage in stereotyping and categorizing people into groups. But we've been convinced that there's something wrong with that. Now, I'll, I'll give you a little example. Suppose that we have a math equation, and there's a $25,000 prize for you to solve this really intricate math equation. And they're going to give you two groups to assist you so you can win the $25,000. One group is two Asians, and the other group is two white guys. Who are you picking for your math team? We're picking the Asians? <laughs> now, why are we picking the Asians? Because we have a stereotype, a belief system that Asians are really good at math. Now, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But someone would suggest that that demonstrates your racism because you have made a predestination or, or a, a prejudgment based on race or ethnicity. Similar example, we're in a city park, and they've got the, the game is basketball. We've got five white guys and five black guys. Who are you picking? Did you say you're picking the black guys? I'm picking the tall guys. <laughs> but our point here is that we have to 
instead of making blanket statements and being defensive and saying, I don't have a racist bone in my body, we need to recognize that we all engage in bias. We all engage in stereotypes. We need to understand what those categorizations are and deal with them effectively. We need to go into these communities and be open and honest about the things that make us afraid and the things that we want to do to bring us together. Um, so one of the things that we have to do moving forward is to understand that relationship between those who feel uh, put upon by race and those of us who are being accused of being racist. But that is a major weapon, and there are some other matters that we can talk about as well, but that major weaponization of race is at the central core of this problem for the last few years. I, I couldn't agree more. And my question would be, and, and maybe, Aaron, we can switch to you uh, for the answer on this, how do you do that in a world when you are not allowed to engage in free speech? Or we're, we're dangerously close to being in a world where you're not allowed to engage in free thought. Right? So we're told that uh, you are a racist right? because you want to send your kids to school and you don't want your children to be told that if they're a white child, they must repent for the sins of their ancestors. Uh, we know here in California, <laughs> we're being told that we might have to pay reparations. And if you speak out against it, you are shut down, you're labeled, you're castigated. So, so how, do we, how do we address that? So it's important first to understand the landscape that we're working in when we're trying to communicate with one another. So today, communication obviously often occurs online, particularly with social media. So most American adults get their news from Facebook, from links shared on Facebook, from information shared on Facebook, Younger generations tend to get their news from things shared on Twitter and, you know, the youngest generation from things shared on – information shared on Instagram. So all of these social media companies have a particular sort of segment of the American population that they tend to speak to, and that gives these companies an enormous amount of control. And unfortunately, many of these companies have abused that control to control what you can and cannot say on their platforms. And there's a legal argument, there's debate about this, but there's a legal argument that uh, maybe they should do that because they're private companies. And so as private companies, they can decide who they want to allow on their platform and they, what they want to allow people to, to say. I don't buy that argument, but it's an argument that some people make. But what, what can't be argued against is that the government cannot engage in censorship. That's a clear violation of Americans' rights under the First Amendment, which guarantee, among other things, the freedom of speech. And right now, without most Americans even being aware of it, what we are allowed to say, not only on social media, but even on other apps that you use on your phone that you might think are for private messaging only, like WhatsApp, which is owned by Facebook, which is owned by a company called Meta, if any of you use WhatsApp, you know, to communicate with friends or family, maybe you have a group, you use it to communicate with people that are out of the country because it's, you know, less expensive than a, than a phone call. Well, it turns out we now know based on some information that we got on Discovery in one of the free speech legal cases that I'm involved in, we know that information is limited and censored even on private messaging apps like WhatsApp, and that is done not just under the control of Facebook or Meta or Twitter or one of these 
social media companies, it's done at the behest of the US government, okay? So I just wanted to give you a very brief overview without getting down into all the details and all the weeds of what Michael Schellenberger has called the censorship industrial complex. Some of you might know Schellenberger, he ran for governor in the last election, um, but he's a journalist. And he's one of the journalists involved in wh what's been called the Twitter files. So Elon Musk bought Twitter, as you may have heard. And to his credit, he opened up some of the internal communications at the company to some reporters, including Schellenberger, who looked into what was going on there. And one of the things that they found was that the government was colluding and often pressuring these companies to censor certain information. Now, I was aware of this already because I'm one of the plaintiffs in a case called Missouri versus Biden, okay? This was the state attorney general of Missouri and Louisiana filed a lawsuit against several senior officials in the Biden administration, alleging that now there are at least a dozen federal agencies implicated, the White House and a dozen other executive agencies from the FBI to the Department of Homeland Security to uh, uh, agencies involved in the Department of Health and Human Services that are involved in social media censorship. And there's four private plaintiffs in that case, myself, two other uh, doctor scientists, and uh, Health Freedom Louisiana, which is a medical freedom group similar to the Unity Project. And so we're suing the federal government to try to uncover and stop what Schellenberger called, has called the censorship industrial complex. Basically, starting around 2016, in the wake of the election of Donald Trump and in the wake of the, the Brexit movement in Great Britain, our elites, and this involves elites from both parties, by the way, that you know, the, the Republicans are not entirely innocent in this regard either. But our, our ruling elites decided, yeah, democracy is all well and good until we get some result from a democratic election like this, like the election of Donald Trump or like Britain's decision to leave the European Union. That wasn't supposed to happen. And so democracy is all well and good so long as we can control what the voters think. And so the voters do the right thing according to our judgment, according to what we believe is best for them, right? This is the kind of condescending attitude that our elites have for ordinary Americans, for our, our intelligence, for our experience, for our judgment. Um, so they decided, okay, if democracy is gonna survive, according to our definition of democracy, we gotta control the flow of information. We gotta control what you read, what you share, where you get your information. And so they started building up partnerships with social media companies and with other private entities. University of Washington and Stanford University are two key universities that are involved in this whole censorship complex. And they started controlling what could and couldn't be said. And this really took off during the COVID pandemic, right? So the, the reason that there's three doctors and scientists involved in this lawsuit is that all three of us experienced censorship either putting stuff out there on social media that wasn't seen on the other end, that's called shadow banning. You, you may not even realize that you're being censored. It's just that you know none of your followers can actually see what you post. 
or have actually been kicked off platforms or had interviews or information or articles that we've published taken off these platforms. So there was a lot of censorship around COVID. And obviously, if you followed any of the work of the Unity Project, you're aware of all of those issues. But as we proceeded with this case, and this, this case, uh, you may have seen it in the news a few months ago, we were able to depose Anthony Fauci. This was the first time that Dr. Fauci had to answer a series of difficult questions under oath, under penalty of perjury. He developed a, a new syndrome called sudden onset amnesia, <laughs> where he could not remember anything. <laughs> so I published a piece in Compact Magazine, it's on my Substack homepage if you wanna look at it, called Dr. Fauci's Amnesia. All the things that he had forgotten, uh, you know, why he did what he did during the pandemic. He couldn't remember anything during the deposition. But we deposed Anthony Fauci, we deposed Elvis Chan, who's a top-ranking FBI official. We're deposing Jen Psaki, the former press secretary for President Biden. And based on information that we got on discovery in this lawsuit, basically what we found is they were not just censoring on COVID-related matters. Right? So they were censoring on uh, election integrity issues. They were censoring on issues ranging from uh, gender ideology to abortion, to other issues that many people here might care about, right? Issues that are obviously hotly debated and where both sides of those debate debates need, needed to be heard. So what we got during COVID because of this censorship was the false impression of a scientific consensus about vaccine mandates or about the utility of masks and stopping the spread of virus or whatever. And in fact, there wasn't a consensus. There was a lot of debate. It's just one side of the debate was silenced and shut down so that ordinary Americans had no access to it. Our policymakers had no access to that information. So this is a very, very serious problem. And the, the only other thing I'll say about this case, this case is called Missouri v. Biden. If you want to learn more about it, uh, you can look at, I've published several pieces on it on my Substack. published a piece in the Wall Street Journal called the White House COVID Censorship machinery, which you can, you can look at. That was the lawyer on the case and I published that together. But basically, long story short, what we're uncovering is the, and if, this, if, this if we prevail in this case, this case will arguably be, and this is not just me saying this because I'm involved in this case, other commentators on this case have said the same thing. If we prevail, if what we allege to be true is in fact found to be true and we we believe it is. We have a, a lot of ev evidence that we've uncovered that this has happened. This will be the most important free speech case probably in U.S. history. And the reason for that, um, and I'll, I'll end my comments here and turn it back over to Laura. The reason for that is that prior cases where the government was involved in unconstitutional censorship usually involved the government censoring one book or one author or one article or series of articles, or, or one particular source that journalists were using, right? So some newspaper or some book publisher would get their hands slapped and have to correct uh, that, that censorship. And the government would get their hands slapped because they were pressuring that publisher you know, to take down this or that article or this or that author. What we have in Missouri v. Biden is a case of tens of thousands of ordinary Americans being censored without realizing it, right? So some person sitting on the toilet tweeting about, I don't know about these voting machines, right? 
and having that, not even realizing that whatever he's saying is not going to be heard by anyone, right? So literally tens of millions of examples of tens to hundreds of thousands of individuals being censored. So that the scope and the breadth of this censorship regime is unlike anything we've ever seen before because this is the first major case in the, in the era of social media, in this new digital landscape that we're operating under. So I, I, I just want to give you the impression, number one, that the government is controlling what we can and cannot say online, including what we can and cannot share on things like WhatsApp that we think are private, right, and, and encrypted. This is, you know, me just talking to my friends. No, they may not be able to see the text that you send, but they can send the, see the links that you send. If you send a link to one of Dr. Malone's articles, they'll limit the number of times that link can be shared, for example. These are the kinds of things that are happening behind the scenes that we're not even aware of. So Americans need to wake up to the fact that this level and breadth and scope of censorship is occurring every day. And the last thing I'll say about this is that you may say, well, I'm not on social media. I, I get the newspaper on my doorstep every morning. That's not where I get my news or my information. Or I listen to talk radio or whatever. So I'm not worried about this. Well, even if you yourself are not being censored because you're not on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever, the Supreme Court in previous censorship cases has made it clear that the First Amendment right of free speech is important not just for the speaker so that, you know, Dr. Cariotti can say what he wants to say and get a fair hearing and not have his voice silenced on scientific de debates or public policy debates. Free speech is also important for the listener, for the hearer of the speech because you, as an American, have the right when there's a debatable issue, to hear both sides of the debate and then intelligently make an informed judgment because you've heard both of the arguments, right? Without the ability to do that, to publicly debate important issues, the American experiment in democracy is basically over. This truly is, you know, people are always talking about existential threats to the United States, but, but this one, I think it's no exaggeration to say, if we don't rein in this censorship regime, then the American experiment in democracy is over because it'll be a few people controlling what the voters think, what they say, and therefore what they do at the ballot box and how they make decisions affecting our future. Thank you, Aaron. Uh, no doubt uh, the founding fathers realized the importance of freedom of speech and making sure that we're not censored. It's the reason that it's the First Amendment, right? Uh, just by show of hands, how many of you are surprised by the level and the depth of censorship that we are experiencing as American citizens based on what he just described? That you're surprised? No. How many of you are not surprised? Let's do that. Raise your hand. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it's shocking. And in states here like California, you know, there's been legislative action that's been on the books for well over five years. Uh, in one case, and I believe that it's actually being uh, repealed, but uh, in one case where if you work in a hospital environment and the patient that you're working with expresses uh, a certain pronoun that they would like you to address them by, so for example, it's, obviously it's obvious that I'm a woman. If I were to say you're, re you're to refer to me as a man in that environment um, and you don't, 
adhere to that, you could actually be fined up to $2,500 and spend 180 days in jail. Or, well, or fired, but I, I would be more concerned about the fact that you could spend 180 days in jail um, and, and pay $2,500 for not using the person's quote-unquote correct pronoun. Uh, this is and I could probably stand up here, this is not the topic of this, this particular panel, but I could stand up here and quote bills that, are, that we're experiencing right now in California for the next hour that would blow your mind. And so, you know, here we've heard from Curtis, you've talked about the fact that they're weaponizing race, they're weaponizing gender, uh, we know that we're being censored. So, I mean, where do we go from here from a standpoint of citizenry? What is the next step? What is the next step as, as a citizen? What's the next step as a parent in responding to this as a responsible, active, engaged citizen? Well, to let you know the depth of the problem, you know, we're here out in La La Land, California, no offense. <laughs> and I'm from Indiana. And Indiana is a very conservative red state. We have a supermajority. So you think that things are all hunky-dory in Indiana, right? No, the same game is being played in Indiana as everywhere else. And I'll give you an example. Uh, when I was Attorney General, um, the rulemaking authority of state agencies uh, was required to come through my office for approval. The Bureau of Motor Vehicles decided to enact a rule, not a law, but a rule creating an additional classification of person called X. So you would go to the Motor uh, Bureau of Motor Vehicles and you would apply as a male or a female or an X. And when that came before my desk, I took the position that this was not a, pr a procedural change that was the subject of a rule, but was a substantive change which required legislation. So we denied it and sent it back under the theory that the General Assembly, if it chooses to create a new classification of person, as wrong as I might think that is, that's within the right of the General Assembly to enact legislation. The governor signs it, and then the people hold somebody accountable for what happened. What the, what the effort was here was a state agency took it upon itself to create a rule that would bypass that legislative process and therefore bypass that, accounting, that accountability process. And so one day you would simply go to the Bureau of Motor Vehicles and the X was there and you didn't know how it got there. That was the game plan. Only it wasn't just the agency that was behind it, it was the executive branch of government that runs the agency that was behind it and supported it and the General Assembly leadership. I, I raised the question to the Speaker Pro Tem of the uh, General Assembly thinking that I, had, I was alerting him to a concern of a rogue agency and found out that he was well aware of it and was approving of it as a way to get by no accountability. Uh, so the arrogance that exists within state government, within federal government to pull these things off, they're, they're getting sloppy. What we can do about it is first we have to call it out when we see it. We have to acknowledge what's happening. We also, we also have to develop relationship amongst various groups. We have a variety of different groups that are out there that are supporting the same cause but don't speak, don't communicate. Some of different backgrounds, some of different racial and, and ethnic um, uh, backgrounds. We have to develop relationship and connection with those who are like-minded so that we can organize and formulate a, a movement to redirect and restore our country to the way it needs to be. Yeah, thank you for that.
So I, I do want to talk about some things that we can do and also some positive legal developments because probably after listening to uh, Dr. and Dr. Malone and maybe the two of us, you guys are a little depressed about the state of things. That's why we brought everyone um, to drink a bunch of wine. Yeah, have a little more wine. Pour, pour the wine. <laughs> and, you know, people always ask me, why don't you leave California? You don't like the politics there. And, you know, I come to a place like this and I look around and it's uh, – but California has its upside, so – Enjoy the wine country and enjoy the beautiful weather. Um, but also, so a couple of things that people can do. Number one, you might think, okay, I'm not filing lawsuits. I'm not battling in the courts. Um, you know, I'm just, I'm an ordinary citizen without expertise in this or that area. What can I do? Um, the, the courts, for better or worse, respond to the court of public opinion. So. Oftentimes, you know, you'll have judges that are swayed by which way the, the winds are blowing in terms of the general population. And that the thing that is going to maintain the censorship regime is Americans' ignorance that it is happening. Because when Americans find out that this is happening, they're pissed off, right? So the first thing you could do is just explain to people that this is happening. Help them to understand, right? Share information with them face-to-face, -face, try to share information if you're on social media uh, about what is happening, and let people know. Because ultimately, our government, whether it's the courts or the legislatures, are going to respond to the will of the people. But right now, there's no general pushback from the American population, mostly because ordinary Americans are simply not aware of what's actually happening with censorship. So that's the first thing. The second thing that you could do, and this is really important, is I think all of us, particularly maybe during the pandemic, to one degree or another, and I, I'm certainly guilty of this, I spoke out publicly on pandemic policies. I lost my job for challenging the University of California's vaccine mandate, uh, where I had been a professor in the School of Medicine for 15 years and director of their medical ethics program. So, um, but, but even, even as someone who has been a public voice in some of those issues, those debates, I find myself in certain contexts self-censoring, not actually saying what I think. Sometimes we can internalize these things. Oh, I'm afraid I'm going to be accused of being a racist or this or that phobe. And so I'm just going to keep my mouth shut, even though I know that what's being said here is ridiculous or absurd. And... I think when ordinary Americans start not saying what they think, then we're in trouble as a society. Now, that doesn't mean that you, s you know, say every thought that comes into your head all the time, totally unfiltered. No, there's social context and there's, you know, you have to think about who am I with and what are they capable of, of receiving and all of that stuff. But, but ask yourself, am I biting my tongue now because I'm afraid of what people will say about me? Am I biting my tongue now uh, out of out of cowardice and fear, um, and then maybe challenge yourself to be a little more daring in that regard. Because just as cowardice is contagious, right? Everyone at work is is kind of pretending like they're going along with some new policy at work, and no one's saying anything about it. Courage is also contagious. Maybe it just takes one person around the water cooler or at the lunch table saying, "You know, I I don't know about this. I think this is you know I think this this is kind of bullshit." And two or three people will then feel empowered to say, yeah, me too, right? They'll, people will start coming out of the woodworks saying, I'm, 
Bullshit. I'm with you. Like, bullshit. Bullshit. So, but it takes a little courage to be that first person, right, to call something out. So that's something that all of us can do. And when we start doing that, momentum starts building and people start feeling freed up. So uh, the last thing I'll say uh, uh, about this is uh, uh, the suppression of free speech is very, very dangerous because it's the first step on the road to totalitarianism. Now, does Cariotti think that, you know, we're living in a totalitarian society here in California? No, I don't. But am I worried about the suppression of free speech and where it will ultimately lead? Yes, I am, and here's why. One of the great thinkers of the 20th century, a man named Eric Vogelin, studied the, the totalitarian systems of the 20th century, communism, Nazism, fascism. And he said the, co- the one common feature of all these totalitarian systems was not concentration camps or secret police or mass surveillance, as bad as all those things are. And by the way, we do have mass surveillance too. That's probably another topic for <laughs> another day. But um, he said the common feature of totalitarian systems is the prohibition of questions. In other words, the regime decides what you're allowed not, not even just what you're allowed to say, but what you're allowed to ask, the questions that you're allowed to pose. Is this vaccine really safe? Is it really necessary for someone who's already had COVID? Is it really a good idea to close all of the schools when children are not at high risk from this virus? That seems like it's going to harm kids, right? Oh, no, you're not allowed to ask that question, right? CEOs have been fired from their jobs for asking questions like that over the last three years. So the prohibition of questions is always the first step. The regime monopolizes what counts as truth, what counts as sensible or rational or acceptable. So when you start noticing that this is happening around you, where you're not allowed to pose objections, you're not even allowed to ask questions, You're in a society, you're in a culture or a state that has taken the first and probably the most fatal step toward totalitarian uh, consequences at the end of the day. Even if there are no concentration camps and even if our officials are supposedly still democratically elected. So this is – self-censorship also is is key to how totalitarian systems function. Once totalitarian systems become sufficiently advanced, they don't need the concentration camps anymore. They don't need secret police anymore because citizens inform on one another. Citizens have absorbed the communist ideology and they literally will turn in their own brother or sister or parent for you know, violating the Marxist orthodoxy or for violating the you know, Nazi racist orthodoxy. That is an advanced stage of a terrifying society because people have internalized those prohibitions, right? And the prison that has been created doesn't have any barbed wire anymore because it's the worst form of imprisonment when those questions no longer occur to people, no longer occurs to people to question the system. They go along 
without any difficulty and without the, the need for external forms of coercion because they've internalized the ideology. And all Americans are responsible for pushing back against that. Because it's for your own good. It's for your own good, and people buy into that. And that's what the government's got all, that, that, that's what the government is doing to you. And, and, and I don't say this lightly. I've been engaged in government activity. I was a prosecuting attorney for 28 years. I believe in the justice system, the justice system I grew up in, uh, not what it's becoming, the social justice uh, banana republic. But I'm not a conspiracy theorist nut job. Uh, I know what government's not capable of. Um, but I can tell you, I've learned so much, and you have too, in the last few years, because all of these things that have been occurring over the course of the last few years that have different names to them have been occurring for the last 20 years or 30 years, and some going back to 60 years of social activism that's been slowly uh, eroding our resistance. And now, the good news from the pandemic, there's not much good news, but the good news is the pandemic has given us an opportunity to wake up to see and be alert to what's coming and to stand and take action. You know, there are some hallmark um, indicators, though, of what you were talking about during the pandemic. I mean, we saw neighbors reporting on neighbors um, in certain counties that, you know, they were having parties or someone was walking at the beach or on a, on a hiking trail and they shouldn't be out. Um, and, and the other thing that I, I really want to talk about, Aaron, and, and I know you probably have some thoughts on this too, Curtis, here in California, just I, I'm curious, by show of hands, how many of you guys are familiar with uh, AB 2098? So that is a bill, I believe we have a preliminary injunction, thanks to, to Aaron, uh, that's, and, I, and I want you to talk about that. But, but for those of you that are unfamiliar, this is a bill that um, is probably one of the most dangerous bills that I've heard of in a long time, and that, that's saying a lot considering what we've seen legislatively. It's a bill that says, doctors are not allowed to go against the COVID narrative. And, and let, me be, let me explain that. So essentially, let's say, you know, uh, let's say you have an autoimmune disorder, you've been being treated by a, um, a, a doctor, an endocrinologist, you go to your endocrinologist and your endocrinologist says, you know, I have to recommend against the vaccine because I believe that that could result in some type of adverse reaction as a result of your existing autoimmune disorder. That doctor under AB 2098 could lose their medical license. It is a total infringement on free speech. It's an infringement on the doctor-patient relationship. Um, I would imagine privacy. Uh, so there, there's so there's so many layers to how dangerous this particular piece of legislation is. And so to me, that's a hallmark indicator that we're very, very dangerously close to what you were talking about in terms of kind of this dystopian future that we could we could see yeah that that's right in this bill uh which laura and i went up to sacramento where i testified against this bill they didn't listen to me unfortunately and they passed it anyway the government si governor signed it into law went into effect january 1st that's the bad news the good news is that along with four other physicians in california uh, i've filed a lawsuit in federal court this one is called hogue v newsom if you want to read up more on the case you can look it up um, challenging the law precisely on First Amendment constitutional grounds, because this is an infringement on physicians' free speech, which obviously doesn't harm primarily harm physicians. It harms patients who can't get 
their, an honest opinion from their doctor. And I don't care if you're left, right, liberal, conservative, whatever. I don't know of any Californian that wants to go to their physician and ask their doctor a question about COVID and not get that doctor's honest judgment or honest professional opinion. Nobody wants to go to a doctor that has a gag order and has to read from the script written by the California Department of Public Health because he doesn't want to lose his license, right? Now, you might, you might disagree with your doctor's opinion. You might go seek a second opinion. Obviously, you have the right to do that. But nobody wants their doctor, I think, to, to lie to them or to withhold information that the doctor believes to be true, right? Trust is absolutely necessary for the doctor-patient relationship, and this, this cuts across the ability of patients to trust their physicians. It's also uh, the worst kind of threat to hold over a doctor's head. So I was fired from my job at UCI for challenging their vaccine mandate in court, but then I could go and still set up a private practice and continue to see my patients, right? But empowering the medical board to take away my license if I say something that the state doesn't like about COVID, that means I can't practice medicine at all, right? That's, that's my entire livelihood, my entire ability to care for the patients uh, under my care. So that's, that's sort of the worst professional threat that you could, you could make toward physicians. And it's gonna unfortunately either make some of the best physicians leave the state, we already have a physician shortage in California, it's gonna worsen that, um, or it's just gonna make physicians on certain issues, um, unfortunately not, not speak up and not tell their patients the truth. And this is a trial balloon, right? It's the law is specific to COVID, but if it works for COVID, they're gonna do it for gender affirming care. They're gonna do it for wh you know whatever else the state wants to pr promote in a medical context, and they're gonna start doing it in other states. But the good news, uh, <laughs> the good news is that we filed what's called a preliminary injunction, which the court accepted and granted, halting the application of the law while the case goes to trial. So AB 2098 is not in effect right now. And the preliminary injunction establishes that the five physicians who filed the suit have standing to bring the suit. That's a legal way of saying we have the right to bring this case. That's good news because a couple of other doctors tried the same thing and their cases were dismissed on the grounds of standing. So we got over that hurdle. And the court will only grant a preliminary injunction if the judge believes we have a very good chance of prevailing in this case. So we haven't won the case yet, but so far we have very, very solid indications that we're gonna prevail and this law is going to be struck down. Well, and, and what's terrifying is that you have elected officials that are even um, authoring this type of legislation. And, and you talked about radical gender ideology. It may not be happening in the medical environment in terms of um, that, that breach, but it certainly is in the academic environment, right? I mean, we see, uh, there's actually bills right now that are on the books here in California um, that are interpreted by the California Department of Education that will prevent this, the, the teachers, the schools, the, the administrative staff from um, working with the parents should a child go in and state that they believe that they're a different gender. So that's, that is a direct edict that's to be kept secret from parents. Uh, so it's happening. Uh, it, Curtis, did you have any? Did you want to weigh in on on AB two zero nine eight, just from a legal standpoint? Your thoughts on oh, that? I, I, I couldn't cover it any any better than Aaron did. The, you know, let's go back uh, before I want to open it up for questions in just a moment because I think we only have about ten more minutes. But 
we were talking about what can you do, and, and I want to say that I, I want you guys to give yourselves a round of applause. Go ahead. Give yourselves a round of applause. <laughs> the reason for that is, you know, when we started this panel, I said, by show of hands, how many parents are here? And I think just about everyone raised their hands. It's your ability to engage, to be aware, and to lead the way for your children that can be profoundly impactful. Uh, there are a lot of kids that go to school, they're put into, I, I call it the, the prison system, which you know, there's a lot of similarities between the prison system and the academic system, believe it or not, if you, if you really start to, to break that down, that is not the topic of this panel, but some other time we'll have to cover that. Uh, and, and kids do not feel free to express any question. They don't feel free to uh, potentially even come home and, and ask the questions in their own home. So what you guys are doing is, it can be profoundly impactful. Um, I, I will say I heard a, a child say something that was really heartbreaking to me the other day. She said, you know, I feel like I lead a double life because in her home she's free to um, ask questions, she's free to access information, have open conversation, but in the academic environment, she is uh, forced to be in an environment where everyone's indoctrinated. And you're not allowed to ask questions because going back to what you said, Curtis, uh, should this, this child ask a question, she might be labeled as a transphobe or a racist just by simply asking a question. So um, the mere fact that you guys are here, it, it can be profoundly impactful to, to your children. So I just want you to, to keep that in mind as we explore options for how do you move forward, how do we change what's happening in this country. So with that, um, I don't know how we're going to do it. I think Lynn's got the microphone. Uh, who has a question? Who's brave enough? We'll start over here. I'll let you call it out, Lynn. How about that? Hi. Th thank you all. Um, my wife and I are both in the medical profession and subjected to mandates for vaccines, uh, threats, uh, refusal to honor religious or even sometimes medical exemptions. Do we see anything as far as recourse or justice in that realm for the future? Yeah. That's a great question. Vaccine mandates are the, the original issue that woke me up and, and an issue that I still care very, very deeply about. The courts are not being friendly to challenges to vaccine mandates right now, and I could get into the legal reasons for that. There's a precedent going all the way back to 1905, a Supreme Court case called Jacobson v. Massachusetts that has been over-applied and, and too widely interpreted as a case precedent to basically make it really, really hard to challenge vaccine mandates. The cases, however, against vaccine mandates that are, tend to win in the courts are cases where people are denied a religious exemption to the vaccine. And the reason for that legally is the free expression of religion is a First Amendment right guaranteed by the Constitution. Thanks be to God. First right enumerated in the Constitution. First one mentioned in the First Amendment of the Constitution is the free exercise of religion. Um, and the non-establishment of a state religion exists to support your free exercise of religion, not to exclude religion from the public square. But when a constitutional right is implicated, the court applies a higher level of scrutiny to the case. They apply what's called a strict level of scrutiny, which means the 
the entity denying that religious exemption has a very high burden of proof to establish that they need to n deny that religious exemption. And it's, it's hard for them to do that. So the cases that are winning in the courts are the cases that are challenging vaccine mandates on religious freedom grounds. And it just has to do with the court is willing to apply that strict level of scrutiny in those cases, whereas with a medical exemption, or my case was based upon natural immunity, the court is applying a lower level of scrutiny, uh, what they call a rational basis review. This is getting down into the weeds a little bit too much, but basically on that level of scrutiny, they always defer to the mandating institution um, as they deferred to the University of California in my case. The university didn't have to demonstrate that, that their mandate was narrowly tailored. They didn't have to establish that their mandate did more good than harm. They didn't have to establish that their mandate even achieved the purpose for which they initiated it. Um, so it's a very low threshold for the institution to, to cross. So if you want to fight vaccine mandates in the current legal climate, try to, try to push back on um, freedom of religion grounds. And if you're, if you're wanting an exemption from a vaccine mandate, uh, if you can in good conscience file a religious exemption, that will be the hardest sort of exemption for institutions to deny. Um, and their lawyers know that. It's not because they care about your religi religion or your religious freedom or your conscience necessarily, but it's because their lawyers understand these uh, legal issues and that if you were to, to push back or to you know, threaten to fight in court, they would probably lose. Uh, okay, I think, do we have time for a couple more questions? Two more questions. Okay, Lynn, you choose. My name is Brian. I don't know, one day raps.com in town. I'm not picking back off what this guy said, though. You don't have to be straight afraid to speak out. Because I do like crazy, and my business has grown 10 times right. in the last Good three years. And Love I wouldn't it. know a few of these people here, like Chad, Denise, and even Lynn, really, if I hadn't done so. So as long as you have in your back of mind that you are uncancelable, you can't be messed with. Can't, I say whatever I want every day. I talk so much trash on the Internet that I got my badge of honor yesterday, and I can no longer use Instagram's tools for building my business. So, yeah, the amount of people that will back you if you talk up, you have no clue how many are out there. They're everywhere. Right. You will make so much more money if you just rely on the people that support you. Because what are you going to do? Lose the clients that weren't going to use in the first place? I can tell you, they don't spend money and they're a freaking nightmare to deal with. So wow. talk up, talk shit, and, and you'll be just fine. I promise you. Nothing's going to happen. This is that. still America. Good job, Brian. I will tell, I'm pretty sure that we're all domestic terrorists. I'm getting that put on my business card, so. Okay, we'll do one, we'll do one more. <laughs> By the way, the NSA is monitoring everything that I say, so they're, hi guys, they're probably listening to me right they're now. They're probably here right now. Smartphone, yeah. My question has to do with the schools, and my question has to do with the, how are they gonna, like, you know how they label foods, like organic or non-organic? Don't we have a right to know that the mRNA vaccine is in our foods or our children's school lunches? I want to know what sort of uh, legal ramifications we have to be able to ask those questions. They can't just nilly-willy put everything in our food, and then we just got to go and suck it up. And uh, these guys are meat eaters, all these guys. 
These guys want to barbecue this summer, and we don't want to worry about, you know, weird shit in our food. I'll let one of you guys take that. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, look, I'm, I, I think I, we're about ready to get our own cow. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this would take us down a long legal and regu regulatory rabbit hole. But, yeah, the, the FDA um, is in major need of reform, as are all of our public health agencies. Um, and we've got we've to pray for a, uh, a, a new administration that is willing to reform CDC, FDA, NIH. FDA is going to be responsible, uh, the gatekeeper on on these issues, um, the the whole vaccine and your lettuce thing, which you may have heard about or read about. Um, so yeah, I mean, if we want labeling, if we want safe foods uh, that are not pumped full of strange things that the transhumanists want to experiment with us on, then uh, that's going to take some legal and regulatory action at the state level and or at the federal level. And you know what, um, there, are, there are candidates now in the race from both parties. I'll mention my friend uh, RFK Jr. You know, he and my, I might not agree on all issues, but he is dialed in on a lot of this stuff. And I really admire the fact that he's thrown his hat in the race. Obviously hard to, hard to beat an incumbent, and I'm not political, I'm, I'm not here, this is not a stump speech for him or DeSantis or Trump or whoever. Um, this is not an endorsement. I'm just saying I, I'm edified by the fact that he's bringing these issues to the Democrat primary debates. Almost impossible to beat an incumbent, uh, an incumbent president, although, you know, this one may be beatable, uh, if anyone is. Um, but he's at least going to be – these issues are going to be now part of that – part of those debates, whereas if he wasn't in the mix, they wouldn't even be on the table for one of the parties. And so he's gonna, you know, he's gonna bring an interesting twist. And I think as a consequence of that, more Americans are gonna be aware, first of all, that these are issues. What are you talking about? MRNA in the food, right? Um, so, so there are some positive developments on the horizon. There's more and more conversations and more and more public uh, uh, leaders with a, with a voice that can change the conversation that are starting to wake up. So I think there's, you know, there's reason to be cautious, but there's no reason to be pessimistic. You know, America's overcome a lot of, a lot of crap in our history, and Americans are strong and resilient. So we'll we'll beat back this one. Well, I, I would add to that. We have lost confidence in our institutions, and that's and and where do we get that back from? Because we have, our government has lied to us, and we've caught them in the lie. And once we know that the government has lied, how do we get back? When someone says this is safe. Uh, safe and effective. Well, anybody believe in safe and effective anymore? Um, so how do we regain, how's the government that we put in power regain our trust? That's an open-ended question that uh, hasn't been resolved yet. Okay, I think we have one time for one last question. Yes, I just wanted to build on what that gentleman over there said. We need to be on the offense. We're tired of being on the defense. If they Amen. call us a racist, so what? I, I fire back at them and say, oh, yeah, I am a racist, but wait a minute, didn't you back Black Lives Matter? Well, of course. Okay, so you're a racist against white people. You're a racist against Asians. I mean, the, the other side, they're not that bright. It's much, <laughs> it's much easier for us because we are educated, and if we do it in the right way, we can shut them down every single time. 
So don't be afraid. I mean, I have uh, a niece and a nephew that live on the East Coast that think I'm transphobic because they saw me put something online about Dylan Mulroney. And I said, wait a minute. And I didn't even know that. They started, like, calling me out. I'm like, what are you so mad at me about? Because you're transphobic. You don't like Dylan Mulroney. I'm like, oh, I, on the contrary, I think Dylan's, uh, I think he's brilliant. He's laughing all the way to the bank. <laughs> I, I, I really feel bad for the little guy that's got uh, Anheuser-Busch in his 401k and it's tanking and they're going to lose money in that. Right. And these kids don't know that. They're so dumb. They're not getting exposed to that. So get out there, people. Educate your younger, your younger children, your nieces, your nephews, your neighbors, because they don't know. And a lot of the 30-somethings and 40-somethings don't have time to do the studying. So we've got to educate them. Do not be afraid of the name calling. It's a badge of honor, and you just be smarter, and you take it on them. I love it. Let's get Amen. her name. Do you need yeah. a job with the Unity Project? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I love you guys. You guys are all awesome. Thank this you is, for this being has been here. This is fantastic. This is great. Yeah, I, I, I would like to end by saying, first of all, thank you for, for being here. Thank you for listening to this panel. Hopefully you got something out of it. I still very much am a patriot. I very much believe in this, this country. I think this is, hands down, the greatest civilization to ever grace this planet. I think uh, we are the most opportunity-giving uh, country in the entire world, and I still very much believe in this country. We have a lot of work to do, um, but it's people like you that I think will ultimately impact change. And so thank you for listening. I think... Do you, is there a possibility that we could talk you, Curtis, into ending maybe on a little note of Elvis? <laughs> Are you lonesome tonight? Will you miss me tonight? Are you sorry we drifted apart? Does your memory strain to that bright summer day? When I kissed you and called you sweetheart. Do the chairs in your parlor seem empty and bare? Do you stare at the doorstep and picture me there? Is your heart filled with pain? Shall I come back again? Tell me, dear. Are you lonesome too? Nice. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen.